Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is our penultimate session uh, on the first day of WAF. And uh, Kutub uh, Manviwala is going to talk about a rather extraordinary uh, project in India, which it involves a kind of the challenge of modernity when you're dealing with people in existing environments um, and people from uh, a particular uh, religious or philosophical uh, aspect. Um, in other words, a complex project um, which I think has required some powers of persuasion um, as well as the creative skills uh, of a genuine architect. So please wel welcome Kutub Manviwala. Thank you. Uh, as Paul introduced, I'm architect Manviwala Kutub from MQM Mumbai. And I'll be talking on the urban renaissance, that is the spirit of Bindi Bazaar and its metamorphosis. Basically, uh, we are in a very different situation in India, where there is a different kind of residential and complex developments in some parts where there's pre-independence housing and development which is done. Is this stone? So, what has been studied is the work of few designers. A minuscule portion of built environments it is essential to study all environments over the full span of their existence and in all cultures. Amos Rapport. It's a very true saying, and this is something which is really something to look into. India is a mix of architecture, culture, art, history, and geography. The basics most Indian cities have grown around a historic core, which have either been dilapidating or have been renewed through a piecemeal approach. Pune, a core city, which was basically a city of uh, politics, then became a city of institution, and then eventually became a city of an IT hub today. Hyderabad, a core historic city, as you see the Charminar behind. Kolkata, once the city of joy, or still known as the city of joy. Delhi, the capital of uh, India. And here we see some glimpses of the old Delhi, which is a cramped old city. Bangalore, which we used to once call the city of gardens. But today, if you have to travel from one place to the other, it is a really nightmare of the traffic out there. Ahmedabad is a city which has some good architecture out there and beautiful poles out there, the housing. But all the streets are very narrow and the infrastructure is in a dilapidated condition. So most of these cities which are historic to core are now in a dilapidated condition or are having a lot of issues and piecemeal development happening there. The issue of Mumbai at the core <laughs> Mumbai has 2.2 million people in the overall city, but with an average population density of 27,000 around per square kilometer, 
the urban texture of only greater Mumbai is defined by this low-rise housing, which houses nearly 12 million people, residents out there. So Mumbai and its evolution. Mumbai is, was basically in the 17th century, or in the 1700s, it was seven islands which were there. These seven islands were knitted in 1760 to give us what was one large island out there. This island in 1850 was redefined to pro form a pro proper map of what we call a reclaimed Mumbai. Then, in timeline-wise, 1853, we had the first railway line which was developed in Mumbai, which started from Mumbai to Thane. Then in 1870, the Bombay Port Trust was developed. This was developed for the trade to take place from the eastern front of Mumbai. In 1895, the Bombay Improvement Trust was developed. This was done so as to develop the infrastructure in Mumbai. And then in 1920, the Bombay Development Department, or the BDD, started developing residential developments for the mill workers and for the immigrants who came into the city to work in mills and different parts of Bombay. Present day, Mumbai is a very happening place, but there is a lot of chaos as far as traffic and haphazard development which is happening out there. <laughs> the typology of buildings in Mumbai, so the island city, basically in the early 19th centuries, had these buildings which were normally ground plus three, ground plus four. These buildings had commercials at the lower level where the shops were facing the roads, and the housing was on top for three floors or four floors. Then we had public buildings like the Secretariat facing the Azad Medan. Then we had the commercial buildings or the office buildings which came up next to the ornament circle. We also had the High Court facing up towards the Oval Medan. And then we had some nice bungalows which were at that time built in a place which was high end for living at Malabar Hill and Nipinsi Road. So these were the kind of buildings which were built in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. The Mumbai University, this is the architecture vocabulary of the old buildings in Mumbai. So the Mumbai University was built in 1857, which was Gothic style. Then we had the Victoria Terminus in 1888, which was more the Victorian style. Then we had the Gateway of India in 1924, which was the Indo-Sarsenic style. All these were built with the local Malach stone, which is very, very, this to only Mumbai. This was locally available in Mumbai. In the 1930s, along the Marine Drive, the waterfront, we had these Art Deco buildings, which housed the residences out there. In 1974, we had Charles Korea coming up with a modern building in form of Kanchanjunga, and now, we have the more contemporary buildings which are coming up in the northern part of the city. <laughs> High-density CBD. So what infrastructure was built for one million people in the early 19th century? Now, in the, only in the greater Mumbai, takes care of 12 million people out there. So today, the scenario starts changing. 
you can see the mapping of the density on the left-hand side, where in the greater Mumbai is the most dense part where there's a red color patch which we see. On the right-hand side, you see <laughs> some parts of this dense part of how the streets are functioning, and hardly there is any movement space for any traffic or pedestrian movement. <laughs> the neighborhoods in Mumbai, as per the early times, so there were different neighborhoods which were formed while Mumbai was getting developed. Like one is of Ban Ganga. The Ban Ganga was a combination of religious and residential. So this water tank was very sacred and very religious, and along with it was a large residential development. The second was the Dobi Ghat. The Dobi Ghat is nothing but it's a laundry area where clothes are washed. So this was occupational. This was at the place near Mahalakshmi. And around it was another kind of a industrial development which took place with small-scale industries coming around it there. Then we had the chawls, which were industrial and residential. So the chawls were basically, again, made of green three plus, ground plus three, ground plus four structures, where you know, uh, bachelors from immigrants who came from different parts of the country stayed in groups of three, four, or five, six in these chawls. And they were basically all workers who had come here as migrants. Then we had the marine drive, which was purely residential, which was facing the waterfront. And finally, we had the Kotachi Wadi, which was a pre-industrial housing, which was existing in Mumbai. So South Mumbai and Seaward. So while we talk of Greater Mumbai, one of the peculiar parts of Greater Mumbai is the South the sea ward. The sea ward is a mixed-use commercial, residential, and manufacturing activities all happen in that part of the city. This city comprises of 4,000 4, to 5,000 dilapidated buildings, which houses nearly 1.5 lakh people out there. The areas which come under the sea wards are, <laughs> one is Buleshwar, which is a very commercial area. Second is Kamatipura. Here, there is a, a different kind of trade which happens with residences out there. Then we have Bindi Bazaar. And the fourth that we have is the Nal Bazaar. Again, a market with residential and commercial activities happening out there. <laughs> Some of the general problems that we see in this area. One, we see is an unplanned development. Nearly 30,000 buildings are in shadow of debt. They, are, they can collapse at any point of time. Debt and disaster, every time after monsoon, we have number of buildings which are collapsing, and we see number of deaths which are happening out there. Bad infrastructure, or really no infrastructure, as you can see in the picture, with narrow lanes, no area for movement of traffic, etc. Environment is not very friendly to live in. Small houses, as you can see in the pictures. And population density is very, very high. And no open space whatsoever in this whole area. Now, when we talk of Bindi Bazaar, Bindi Bazaar is 16 and a half acres of your land, which is your mark for redevelopment. This 16 and a half acres, as we see here, <laughs> has 4,000 families. 270 existing buildings and 1,200 businesses which are there. 
I will show you a small clip which will show you what Binti Bazaar is all about today. some religious structures out there which are existing. This is how it started in the pre-independence time. You see the tram in the between. But today's time, there's no parking facility. There are all the shops. And with the population density, it's So this area is basically, there are major people who are staying there are from a Shia Muslim community, which are the Daudi Boras. They, were, they have majorly migrated from the neighboring states of Gujarat, Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan, etc. And they are people who are all into a trading community. So they all are into small businesses where they go, they sell, go in the morning and come back in the evening. They have shops within that vicinity or within that area. The lifestyle of these people are very different. They have houses where the houses are normally carpeted, so they get up in the morning, they have their prayers in the morning, which is done on the floor. Then there's a mausoleum in that area which ties the community, and it's of a spiritual leader. So they go there, they visit the mausoleum. They have shops in that area which sells antique, leather, hardware, perfumes, etc. And they have a different style of eating. They all sit down and eat together in a large kind of a, a plate or a vessel that you call. So this is the kind of lifestyle of these people who are staying there. Now this area, because of this culture, has got <laughs> different activities happening at different times, which are religious and which take place in that. So in times of... There are festivals like Ramzan or Moram. There are a lot of gathering, people come down and there are a lot of functions which happen. And there's a lot of shortage of space. So there's no space for people to gather. So as you see here, people occupy the streets. The arrangements are made in the streets outside where people sit in a cramped condition. And when food is served, again the food is served by putting some covering on the roads, so the roads are blocked up. This is the time when they have processions which happen on the road. So there are no specific roads for the processions, so they block the traffic, block the activities, block the day-to-day -day lifestyle of the people out there. So we've, while we started working, we started making a study on many things which were there. So one of the main things we started was also how does the traffic behave in that area. So we started with the traffic pattern, where we have a, on the right-hand side, we have on the east side, 
we have a major network of road, which is a primary road, and which is very heavy in traffic, as you can see in the pictures now. Then we have the two secondary roads connecting to the east and west. And these are also quite uh, heavy as far as the traffic is concerned. Then we have the third roads, the tertiary roads, or the internal roads which are there, which connect to the north-south, which are used majorly by the people for vehicles as well as for pedestrian activities. Then we have the internal roads which are connecting to the east-west, again, which have very little space to walk or to drive around. This is a small clip which again tells you how the commercials behave or how the retails behave in that area. So the shops are directly opening towards the roads. The shops are connected to the roads. And since they don't have space, you know, it is all connected to... So they occupy the outside area. There are no parking spaces. This is how the loading and unloading of material happens there. So it's all on. And there are a number of eateries which come out because there are no pedestrian plazas. The eateries are directly on the road. So this restricts a lot of movement. Cultural shops which sell cultural items like caps or the ladies' wear. Again, traditional perfumes are one big item which sells there, and these are traditional clothes. Again, you can see from top the kind of the lanes, and this is the east-west connection which is existing out there. And you can see the kind of uh, the roads and the, see the kind of uh, situation where traffic can't move, people can't walk. So we started, for our uh, study, we started also studying what kind of commercials were there, and what is the character of the commercials in these streets. So we realized on the western side, we have something which is known as a mutton street. This is also a very famous road and also known as a chore bazaar. And this chore bazaar is something which is heavily visited by anyone who comes to Mumbai for antiques and other things. Then we had the another north-south street, which basically sold hardware and eateries. So the Taira Street sold clothes and leather goods. Then we had the Park Moria Street selling leathers and eateries. And then we had the main Ibrahim Rematullah Road, which sold, it had general restaurants, and it sold foam, etc. The East-West Road, again, had a lot of eateries out there, in that place. On the site, we had one existing building which was there which is just constructed about a few years back and has just popped up. And then, besides that, on the site, we had a number of religious structures which were there, which we have retained, and we have kind of just uh, refurbished them. We are going to refurbish them and open them up to the people in a better way. So these were the maps of all the religious structures which were existing in the 16 and a half acres with the existing building, which in our master plan we had to retain, and in our solution we had to take care of them as and where they were. The site study showed us that the 16 and a half acres was centrally located, and connecting to it 
on the western side, we have the Western Railway, which connects right till the north part of Mumbai. So we had the two main stations, the Mumbai Central and the Grand Road. On the eastern side, there was a central line also connecting to the central side of Mumbai, which also had the two stations within a close vicinity. Then we have the harbor line, which moves along the eastern front, which also connects within a kilometer distance from there. There were the main roads which were connecting, the JJ flyover, the Eastern Express Highway, which takes you out of Mumbai, and the East-West roads, which take you from the East-West. The site study and the social infrastructure around that place. So site, when we take a radius of around two kilometers around this, we have a number of hospitals which are there, already existing or already then, within that two kilometers, we had number of schools which were there. We had number of police stations which were existing. But in the 16 and a half acres, we had only one tree which is there. So this is where the site is and this is where the situation. So the statutory think tank, you know, now, when we look back, why this is in this state? So these were all rental buildings. So Bombay Rent Act was announced in 1947. The Rent Act froze the increase of rent beyond a certain extent. Now when that happened, the landlords of the building couldn't maintain the buildings. Hence the buildings over time went into dilapidated conditions. So in 1971, the Bombay Building Repair and Construction Board was established to look into the repairs of these buildings. Then, <laughs> in 1977, the Maharashtra Housing and Area Development Authority was developed, look in and create a list uh, of all those buildings which were in dilapidated conditions, known as the SES buildings. Luckily, after this redevelopment started in 1991, in 2008, the government realized that there was a need for a better development plan to come up in this area. So the urban renewal cluster development was taken up in 2008, where a 33.9 was a cluster development approach taken forward. It means that any land which is beyond 4,000 square meters, could, which is bounded by a physical road boundary or a railway boundary or any kind of infrastructure boundary, could take up a redevelopment out here and change the whole area <laughs> inclusive of the infrastructure. So we had you know, effective functioning of administrative towns, market-driven change of land use, dilapidating aging parts of the city, not providing the city with full potential and becoming a health hazard out there. So in terms of infrastructure, measures for efficient and smooth movement of traffic, improvement of transportation network, and improvement of utilities. That was the basic purpose and how to resolve this. Examples of some redevelopment which is today happening in Mumbai, which is not done in the cluster development. Most of these cases, as you see in the left-hand corner on top, the redevelopment buildings where people are rehoused are just cramped in a very small area. So you see those four buildings standing there with just six meters open spaces between them. And you can realize that there's hardly any light and ventilation which is there for the houses in between. So all these houses, which were in a, people staying in dilapidated conditions, now have been put up in a vertical slum. 
On the second right-hand side, you see conditions of redeveloped buildings, which have deteriorated again in a very short time. The left-hand corner below shows us a single building propping up on a single site with no infrastructure. And the right-hand corner shows you know, housing coming up right one in front of the other without any consideration. So cramped spaces, unjust distribution of land, where people have been rehoused in small places and large plots have been kept for the sale buildings. No parking facilities, no green areas, <laughs> and density distribution is unequal. And individual plot development results with no infrastructure development. So the guidelines for the design, so the area was 16.25 acres, the ward was C, the name of the project was a cluster redevelopment, and uh, per, it had to upgrade 3,200 families, 2,000, uh, sorry, 1,200 shops, and overall 4,000 families from a century-old infrastructure out there. So urban fabric understanding and goals for the master plan. So we had a strength to strengthen our past footprints. We had to uh, see that the cultural bond, because culturally it was a very vital place, <laughs> and it had a lot of connect to the people of the city that had to be uh, recognized, to create something modern out there, to make a symbol of emerging success and growth, to uplift the living standards. Today, the way the people are staying there, they don't even have the proper facilities. The uh, houses which are there vary from 80 square feet to 100, 150 square feet. And they don't have basic utilities like WCs in the house. They have common WCs where they go out and they share the facilities. So these, these are the kind of living standards in which people are living out there. Create a sustainable mixed-use development. <laughs> the present scenario says there's a demographic imbalance. There's a geographic imbalance, there's an economic imbalance, and ecological imbalance. What we need is health and happiness, culture and economy, ecosystem and species, and energy and materials. <laughs> we need to look at some smart neighborhood theories which we can try to incorporate in this dense development. It is difficult, but just to see how we can do it, and learning and studying from some of the examples. One is the streetscape designs of how to calm the traffic. Second is to see whatever parks or green spaces that we can create. Third is to see a good development of mixed-use development. So the less the people travel, the less is the pollution, and the less is the traffic on the roads. And to see there is equal di uh, distribution of density, so as that everyone gets good apartments to live in with natural light and ventilation. High density, high rise. <laughs> As this was a very high-density development, we had or we have to go high-rise to resolve and give a solution to the same. So you are looking at how, by going to, into high-density high-rise, whether we could achieve some amount of open space which was there or public space which was there. And there were existing religious institutes which were there, which had to be converted into landmarks, or to see how to enhance the urban character out there. Vertical development to try and resolve infrastructure problems so that there is good amount of parkings which are there in the basement so that the roads are freed up. <laughs> there is a good amount of off-street parkings all cleared. Commercials have got space for loading, unloading, large payments in front for people to walk 
and good clean roads for people to drive around. Health and hygiene, high-rise development will give maximum exposure to natural light and ventilation. Today, where the buildings don't have natural light and ventilation, provide sanitation for individual homes and make it as sustainable as possible. The trust was uh, formed by the religious leader and his successor has taken it up and they're following on the same. The trust, one of the biggest problems of redevelopment is how do you take care, how do you start the project or how do you move around? So the trust took a land which was there in five kilometer radius and there they developed what you see on the left hand side, a transit camp for residents. <laughs> Twelve, virtually 2,000 residents out of 3,200 families or 2,000 families have been shifted into these transit camps. These transit camps have been built specially only for people to stay here, only till the time they are moved back into their new houses, back into the Pindi Bazaar. On the right-hand side, you see that this is one of the first transit camps for commercials. Since we have 1,200 commercials in that area, and the markets are all in that area, within 500 meters, they have taken another plot of land <laughs> to build commercial transit so as that it does not become difficult for the traders who are sitting out there and they don't lose the business. So we have a residential transit and a commercial transit already constructed. People are staying here. They have got self-contained houses which are built there for them and good commercial uh, uh, spaces facing towards the road to continue doing their business while the construction which has started happens out there. <laughs> Urban infrastructure and connection. As we see that the existing streets which were there, <laughs> we started converting and we started working and identifying the streets, the main streets and the secondary streets. The infrastructure traffic uh, flow and the religious structures which were there were all connected <laughs> so as to see that there was a proper connection between these areas and they were accessible from the main roads. The proposal of to wider, widen the roads for better infrastructure and pedestrian and vehicular movement. So as we see what in scale, we reduce the number of roads, but to the government and to the city, we had to give back the same area of the road so as the land has to be given back. So we defined which were the roads which were required and we eliminated the roads which were not required and we gave back the same area of the roads back to the city and it's from 26 clusters that we had, we came down to nine clusters with better, wider roads and better and wider infrastructure. <laughs> the zoning which was done, we had, as I said, 26 clusters in the existing. So we started zoning these clusters and started creating blocks out of it. So all the 3,200 families were mapped, the 1,200 shops were mapped, and they were zoned out in the, from the 26 zones into these basic nine zones. After which, we started segregating them as the first complex where there were two religious structures and made it into a religious area so that all the activities, major activities, don't happen on the streets and people get the space to gather 
during the times of all the festivities. Then the major chunk was given for the redevelopment component. So unlike the other redevelopments in the city where major chunk goes to the sale, here the major chunk was given for the redevelopment of the people who are existing out there. <laughs> and then the last area on the north side was the minimum area given for the sale component, just enough to see that the funding of the project is done and that the project goes through. A little uh, this on how the overall uh, concept was worked out. So the ground floor on all the clusters, nine clusters had shopping out there, ground first and second. Then the third floor onwards, there were these podiums for parking. I'm sorry, it just closed. So the ground first and second is what we had as commercial shoppings, all facing towards the road or street front shopping. <laughs> and then second, third, fourth, uh, ground first, second, third, fourth were the commercial uh, parking areas. And after that, there was a podium garden with all the amenities and then the residential. The idea of taking the buildings from south up towards the north was that because there was a religious complex which was created here. So around the religious complex, we wanted to have a lesser height of buildings, while the higher and the taller buildings were taken more towards the north side. So where people gather in, where people are there, and a large festive areas take place, you don't feel the cluster, you don't feel the tall buildings overpowering into those areas. And this, by doing this, we face all the buildings towards the north-south, leaving the east-west open. The idea was because in Mumbai, there is a continuous breeze which keeps on blowing from the west <laughs> in the most part times of the year. Now, this allows us a lot of sensitivity to the sustainable development because the north-south light is very good. It does not allow the heat to come in, while the east-west, which is open, allows the breeze to keep on blowing so that every apartment which is there starts getting natural light and natural ventilation. So we came down to a final master plan where we had nine subclusters which were there. Each maximum of them took away the rehousing, while the first and the last cluster, the first had the religious part and the last had the sale part which was there inside. As we see in the section that there are two levels of basement for parking, that was majorly for the commercial buildings, <laughs> for the commercial tenants who had shops down, so the shops and the visitors. Then we had three levels of retail. So all the three levels of retail basically faced towards the front. Then we had two levels of parking above that for the residential. And then we had an area which was the amenity area on top of the podiums. This amenity with the gardens connected to the streets. And then on top, we had the residential which was there. So this is how we worked out the sections for all the buildings and each of these clusters had their own greenery, own gardens, own parkings, own infrastructure. So eventually, all these roads will go back to the city. And what you see of the 16 acres will be the nine subclusters. And each of these nine subclusters will be, per se, self-contained by itself, having all its amenities, all its utilities together. But as a complex, it will look as one complex, but with different heights, different buildings, and different characters. So we started working out something which was at a concept level, 
where we had the religious structure with a lot of openness. We had <laughs> shorter buildings in front, and then the taller buildings rose back up towards the north side. This is the view from the southwest corner. This was a view from the southeast corner. This is what you would see from the eastern side, <coughs> where you see uh, the buildings. And the last towers that you see are the sail towers, which are there on the north front. The pedestrian plaza. While we were doing, while we were planning this, and as we sh uh, showed in the video, there were a number of times when there were these processions and different activities which took onto the streets. Presently, it really hampered how the traffic movement was there and how these pedestrian activities were working. So while we worked out our master plan, we saw that all the clusters had enough uh, space to have their accessibility as far as entry exit for vehicles were concerned. So we earmarked some of the, some of the areas for the pedestrian walk where these streets would be pedestrian. This would help the vitality of the uh, shopping which would be there. These pedestrian plazas would have nice eateries kind of thing. And the basic design was different. The streetscape was different. Rather than having the trees on the side, the trees were taken in the center. And this was just allowed for emergency vehicles to move in. And these are some of the sketches which show five minutes. <laughs> oh, so these are some of the sketches which show how this pedestrian plaza works and how it culturally connects with it. So in times of festive, these pedestrian plazas can be converted into these areas which can be used for different activities and different fields. This is how we worked out the road character and the road type, where we did the street calming at the junctions. We planted trees which were differently at the junctions so that they, uh, they were identified as nodes out there and how the character of the road changed to slow down the traffic at that point. The individual houses <laughs> were developed in a different way. Although it shows living bedroom, kitchen kind of a concept, the kitchen remains as it is. But both the rooms were designed as multipurpose rooms. So in the daytime, both the rooms on the left and right work as living spaces where you can sit, eat down, pray down. And in the nighttime, both the places have, both the rooms have got a connected bathroom or a toilet to them, attached toilets. So both the rooms become the sleeping spaces. Because in each of these houses, there are two, two generations which are staying. So for these people to stay and to live comfortably, this is the way it was designed. The shopping was placed all on the front, all shops facing towards the uh, roads, on ground first, second just like the existing shops were there. So all the shoppings were worked out facing towards the front on the three levels. <laughs> there are existing mosques which are there today. They are all covered up by attached with some buildings. So we worked out that also. We kind of created pedestrian plazas. We created pl pedestrian walkways around it. We adjusted these areas in somewhere else. So the proposed streetscapes around the mosque so as to open up and clean up the shall we see, this is the existing area. This is how we propose to open it up, have nice pedestrian movement, and clean it up. The basic style of architecture, which had to be infused inside, was from the Fatimid, had to be inspired from the Fatimid style of architecture, which is existing in Cairo, because this community basically 
is uh, always inspired by this architecture. So we took some elements from there, because on the site there's a mausoleum which has some elements of the Fatimid architecture. And we took that, and at the master plan level, we created some nodes which became as important nodes. So these nodes started, <laughs> we started identifying these nodes, and we started seeing that how they can become vital points. And with this, we started seeing that how these nodes could be accentuated to create an identity for the overall development. And each node would be differed from one another depending on the scale, the height, and the ca character that it would have. We also studied that in the existing building, these nodes existed today, <laughs> and these nodes were worked out. So we took it up in a different way, that these nodes and the style of architecture was just limited to a certain level, to the parking levels. And as I said before, we used the culture color of the Malad stone, which is so native to Mumbai, and we started working the overall look and feel towards it. We're pretty much out of time, but in, in uh, proposing a vote of thanks to uh, Kutub, can I just say that um, I think what we've just seen is proof positive of the old uh, adage uh, that the greater the density you wish to produce, the greater the amenity you have to provide. And I was very struck by your image of your analysis where it turned out there was only one tree. <laughs> Uh, on the whole of this gigantic site and what you've done in your kind of urban transplant um, is to trade off the height and the density in favor of space and green space um, and a considerable amount of renewed amenity in terms of the mix uh, in this project. And in this town, that idea of mixes within the housing block has been a subject of, of huge interest. Uh, and I'd like to thank you on behalf of the audience for an absolutely fascinating presentation. Thank, thank you, you very much indeed. Thank you.